Well, it's great to be back with you after a week of illness. We were dropping like flies around here. Uh, Usually when I'm sick, Pastor Rob preaches and fills in for me wonderfully, but this time he selfishly was visiting his granddaughter. And uh, so Micah was up, and then Micah got sick on Saturday, and so we said, hmm, what are we going to do? So Jeff Stebbins, thank you so much for uh, so faithfully delivering the word last week. Yeah, you can encourage him that way. So that's the first time in 26 years that's happened, so... uh, we got that out of the way, which I'm glad. So you can take your Bibles and turn along with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. We're still in this guilt section of Romans. Uh, we go, the guilt section goes from chapter 1 through chapter 3, where Paul is in earnest trying to uh, convince us that we are all guilty before God and stand uh, under his judgment and condemnation unless his grace intercedes and grace comes in in chapter 4 and beyond but uh, we're not there yet so we're still in this guilt section of chapter 3 our text this morning is a challenging one in fact some have said it is the most difficult text in the whole book others have even contended that it's one of the most difficult sections in all the bible It's difficult because it's a little hard to follow. It's a little bit hard to know where Paul is doing the speaking and where Paul is actually voicing the objections of one of his imaginary opponents. As I shared with you previously, Paul is using a uh, a style here, a device known as a diatribe in which he is uh, sparring, as it were, Uh, verbally with an opponent, someone who is opposed to his message. And so he's using that as a device to communicate the truth and communicate his message. So that's what's going on here. And so so we see all of these objections by Paul's opponents being voiced here. These objections that are voiced are centered around God's just judgment of the Jews. That God will judge the Jewish people for their sin, just as He will judge the Gentiles or non-Jews for their sin. In the typical Jewish mind, this just didn't make sense. The Jews, after all, were God's chosen people. And with that choosing came certain privileges. And so surely God would treat them differently when it comes time for Him to judge sin. He will not treat them the same way he'll treat the Gentiles, surely. The Jews thought Paul was getting it all wrong with his message. And so they voiced their objections. And so here in this section, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul is repeating these objections this morning, and he answers each one. Now these were common objections. These were likely objections that Paul had heard before repeatedly as he traveled around on his missionary journeys and as he would go to the synagogues and he would, as he would reason with the Jews, he would no doubt hear these objections repeatedly. And probably, very likely, Paul himself used some of these same objections before he ever became a Christian. When he was a Pharisee, he would have had very similar objections to the message of the gospel, the message of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And so these are the kinds of objections that we're going to see today. So look with me in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Let me read it for us, and then we'll pray. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Beloved, this is the word of God. Let's pray together and ask for his help in understanding it. Lord, many have confessed that this is a difficult passage to follow and to understand rightly, and that is our aim today, and so we ask for your aid and help. Give us sharp minds and ears that are quick to hear. Lord, we pray for your spirit to be working among us, working in our hearts, doing that work which only he can do. Using your word. To, to divide soul and spirit. Lord, we ask that you would reveal the secrets of our heart. Lord, that you would convict of sin. Lord, that you would help the weak and the afflicted. And that you would afflict the comfortable. We know that your word can do this, and we pray for its ministry among us. In Jesus' name, amen. The objections to what Paul has taught in chapter 2 really start to fly in chapter 3. The objections that are voiced center around Paul's teaching on God's judgment, his just judgment, of the Jews. That God will judge the Jewish people for their sins, even as he will judge the Gentiles for theirs. These objections seem to break in like Shouts from a heckler in an audience. I'm so glad that on the whole you don't heckle me. At least not audibly. Maybe I don't know what goes on in your mind. but And whenever I think of hecklers, I can't help but think of those most famous of hecklers from The Muppet Show. <laughs> Statler and Waldorf. If you're unfamiliar, it's time to educate yourself. Google it. <clears throat> Those two curmudgeonly old men who only seem to watch the show in order to heckle whoever happens to be on the stage at the time. And they would yell out insults from their box seats over the stage, saying things like this. That was terrible. It was obvious. It was pointless. It was short. Oh, well, we loved it. 
That's kind of like what's going on here, except much more serious in nature. Paul is, if you will, being heckled by his Jewish opponents and perhaps by his own voice before he came to be a Christian. Paul has laid out the truth of Jewish guilt in chapter 2. And that meets with some common Jewish objections in chapter 3. So Paul answers some of these common objections, but he only does so very briefly here in these verses. He will expand on many of these objections in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And so we'll get to that in time. This morning, however, as we look at Romans 3, 1 through 8, we're going to see four objections to the truth that Jews, as well as Gentiles, are guilty before God and deserving of judgment for their sin. Four objections. Trace it with me here. First of all, the first objection. Hey, Paul! Shouts the heckler. Hey, Paul! So is there any spiritual benefit to being Jewish? Paul, in chapter 2, has gone to great lengths to show that when it comes to God's judgment of sin... Jew and Gentiles stand on the same level ground before God. Both being equally guilty of sin and deserving of God's judgment. And so Paul records this first common objection to this idea in verse 1, Romans 3, 1. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? See, it was common in Jewish thought to believe that having the law, possessing the law, and being circumcised as a Jew was enough to get you off the hook with God. That God would overlook any of your life shortcomings, your sins, and He would pass over the Jewish people in His judgment. But Paul says no in chapter 2. Possessing the law and practicing circumcision is nothing, spiritually speaking. And it gets you nowhere with God. These things will not help you escape the judgment of God against sin in the least. So in chapter 2, Paul is combating Jewish spiritual presumption. I'm okay with God because I'm a Jew. God is going to pass over me in the judgment because I'm Jewish, because I have the law, because I follow the law and circumcision and so forth. The Jews, despite their many privileges, Paul says, are in the same guilty predicament as the Gentiles when it comes to God's judgment of sin. So in comes the first objection. Then what advantage has the Jew? So what's the benefit of circumcision? What's it all about, Paul? Is there any spiritual benefit to being Jewish? And Paul answers this objection in verse 2. Great in every respect. What's the advantage? What's the benefit? There are great advantages and benefits in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
Paul says the advantage to being Jewish is great in many respects, in many ways. And he begins with what seems like is going to be a long litany, a list of benefits and advantages that come to the Jews because of their position and because of God's choice of them to be his people. But Paul seems to quickly get sidetracked by another objection before he goes on. First of all, he says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles of God refers to the Old Testament scriptures. The law of God. The revelation of God, of himself. Of mankind, his creation, and where he came from, and the fall. And God's plan for redemption, and his promise, and his covenants. All of it located in the Old Testament scriptures, given to the Jewish people. This alone is a huge benefit and advantage that the Jews have. And the Jews, for their part, were responsible to receive God's revelation of Himself, to preserve it, protect it, and transmit it through the generations by making faithful copies of it. This was a great privilege that other nations and other peoples did not have. Psalm 147, 19 and 20 says that God declares His words to Jacob or the nation of Israel. He declares His statutes and His ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for His ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Psalm 147 says the other nations didn't receive God's special book, God's revelation of Himself. Only the Jews, only Israel received that. Deuteronomy 4.8, God says this to the nation. He says, Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? Answer, no other nation. Not even the greatest nation of the world had it. But this little unknown, seemingly small, insignificant nation received the very Word of God from heaven, written and preserved in the Old Testament. What a great benefit. What a great advantage. The Jewish people were entrusted with the Word of God in the Old Testament, which was a tremendous spiritual privilege. But possession of God's Word does not automatically mean deliverance from God's judgment. God's Word, for it to be effective, must be interacted with, must be read or heard and heeded in order to have spiritual profit come from it. But having the Word of God was a great spiritual advantage nonetheless, since the Word of God shines the light of God's truth into the darkness of sin and evil and fallen human wickedness. So it was a great spiritual advantage. It wasn't the only advantage that came to the Jewish people. God had blessed the Jewish people in many ways. And Paul lists some of these other ways later. It's almost as though he picks up this list that he began in Romans 3 and verse 2, and he picks it up again in Romans 9 verse 4. Okay, listen to what he says there. He says, you, the Jewish people, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ 
according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Among the many benefits, including the priesthood and the covenants and the glory of Christ dwelling among them, think of all these amazing benefits that the Jewish people had. The chief among them is that Jesus Christ himself was a Jew. The Messiah came from the line of the Jews. The Jewish people were the recipients of countless spiritual blessings and advantages Advantages that should have led them to greater knowledge and greater appreciation and greater humility and repentance and greater faith. But sadly, they squandered many of these advantages, by and large. And none of these advantages, as great as they were, were enough on their own to nullify the guilt of sin before a holy God. You and I, though we may not be Jewish, most of us aren't, I suspect, we are also blessed with many spiritual advantages. We have God's Word accessible to us in abundance. Think about the the light of God's Word and how that has blessed us as a people, as a nation, how that has blessed us as a culture through the years. We don't even realize the blessings that are ours because of the permanence and preeminence of God's Word among us. Think about the Basodio people that George Walker will talk to us about. They'd never heard the Bible. They'd never heard of Jesus. They'd never heard this truth. They, they lived in darkness their whole lives until God sent some missionaries to bring the light of God's truth into their lives, and they're forever grateful. You and I have been blessed with the knowledge of God's Word since we were born, most of us. There's great spiritual advantage and blessing to that and benefit. We have access to great gospel-centered churches and Bible teaching and great resources and books that help us to understand God's Word and understand the gospel better and go deeper in our walk with Jesus. All of this is great. And these are great spiritual benefits and blessings and advantages, but none of them on their own is enough to remove the guilt of sin. Only Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross, only Jesus Christ risen from the dead is able to remove the guilt of sin. Only Jesus Christ who suffered on the cross in your place and mine is able to satisfy the righteous justice and judgment of God on our behalf. It's not enough to have a Bible on your shelf. It's great that you do, but it won't do you any good on the shelf until you open it and see how it points you to Jesus Christ and points you to salvation in no other name than His. Spiritual blessing and spiritual benefit, as great as they are, cannot in and of themselves remove the guilt of our sin. Second objection. Hey, Paul! If all Jews aren't automatically saved, isn't God unfaithful to His promises? See this in verses 3 and 4. Okay, Paul, you say that just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you'll escape God's judgment? Well, if some Jews remain unbelieving and are condemned in the judgment, 
Doesn't that mean that God has been unfaithful to his promises? After all, aren't the Jews God's chosen people? If they don't all escape judgment, doesn't that mean that God isn't faithful? There's a veiled accusation here that Paul was teaching that God is unfaithful to his covenant promises in implying that all Jews aren't automatically saved. Paul's answer to this couldn't possibly be stated in stronger terms. Verse 4. May it never be. May genoita in the Greek. This is a phrase that Paul will repeat ten times in the book of Romans. It is one of the strongest expressions of denial that could be made. May it never be. Not on your life. Absolutely ridiculous on its face. To be rejected. That's the idea here. No way, no how. Jewish unbelief and unfaithfulness, Paul says, in no way whatsoever calls into question the faithfulness of God. Yes, the Jews were unbelieving by and large. Yes, the Jews were unfaithful by and large. Yes, they will encounter the judgment if they don't turn from their sin and trust in God's provision through His Son, Jesus Christ. But that unbelief, that unfaithfulness on the part of the Jews in no way calls into question the faithfulness of God Himself. Rather, Paul says, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. You see, God's faithfulness, God's truthfulness, God's dependability is no way contingent upon man's faithfulness. We are faithless, but he remains what? Faithful. God is true and faithful, even while every person is a liar. You know that's true, right? Every human being, every fallen human being is a liar. We're all liars. Are you encouraged? You say, I'm not a liar. Well, you're lying. <laughs> if you've ever lied or not kept your word or failed to fulfill a promise, that makes you a liar. And all humanity is guilty at this point, aren't we? We're honest with ourselves. But despite that fact that every human being is guilty of lying and is therefore a liar, God remains true. God remains faithful. God remains faithful to His promises and true to His Word. Paul then quotes from Psalm 51.4, the great psalm of David's confession of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. Because God is a God of truth, His judgments are also true and His verdicts are in unimpeachable. David says, look, you are, you are right when you say that I'm guilty because I'm a liar but you remain true to your word God's faithfulness to his word is never contingent on our faithfulness and aren't you glad that's true 
If God's faithfulness was contingent in any way on my faithfulness, we, there would be no hope. Because I'm not faithful. Because I'm not true. But God is perfectly faithful. God is perfectly true. God's faithfulness and truth are objectively perfect and transcendently infinite. And no amount of human deceit and unfaithfulness will ever change that. So Paul has answered this objection. Because God is always true to His Word, despite human unfaithfulness. Third objection. Hey, Paul! How can God justly judge us for sin if that judgment of our sin benefits Him by displaying His righteousness? Verses 5 through 7. Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is He? I'm speaking in human terms here. Paul acknowledges here in that parenthesis that this is a very human argument. It's faulty reasoning. It's fallen logic. It is short-sighted and foolish. Like a prideful college freshman who comes home from his first semester ready to argue with everyone using all the power of their newly gained wisdom. Oh yeah, but did you know that well, actually, if our sin, so goes the argument, right? This is the objection. If our sin demonstrates the righteousness of God, isn't God unjust in punishing us since that benefits Him? And puts on display his righteousness? How can God hold me accountable for something that actually benefits him? That actually advances his purposes? They think they've come up with a real logical gotcha here. They're accusing Paul of teaching that God actually condones and encourages sin. Paul's answer comes in verse 6. May it never be. Not on your life. Get real. What are you even talking about? It doesn't work that way. Forget about it. If God's judgment of Jewish sin would be unjust, this is Paul's answer, if God's judgment of Jewish sin would be unjust, then how would God ever judge the sins of the Gentiles, the sins of the world? Now, every Jew was convinced that the uncircumcised Gentiles deserved divine judgment. They thought they were good. They thought they should get a pass. But for sure, they thought the Gentiles deserved to be burned up. Give it to them good, God. Those unwashed masses, those uncircumcised Philistines, they deserve judgment. So Paul is saying, if God can't justly judge the sins of the Jews, then how would He be able to judge justly the sins of the Gentiles? Because when God judges the sins of the Gentiles, His righteousness is put on display. 
If he's not allowed to do that, then he's not going to judge the Gentiles even. See, he's, Paul has taken a judo move here. They came at him and he used their own argument against him. He's shutting down their argument by broadening its application. But that doesn't stop this heckler. Look at Romans 3, 7. But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to His glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? This is the same argument made slightly more specifically. If my lie brings God glory, then why am I being judged for my lie? Paul's going to address this objection along with the next one in verse 8. So let's go there now. This is the fourth objection. Finally. Hey, Paul! If the judgment of our sin brings God glory, then why not sin all the more and bring Him even greater glory? The objections are gradually becoming more and more illogical and unbiblical and, frankly, infantile. Romans 3, 8, And why not say, as we are slanderously, slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. See, Paul was accused at times of teaching this. Because he said the law can't save us. The law is not the instrument that can deliver us from the judgment of God. In fact, it can only make us more guilty. The law crushes us. The law convinces us that we're guilty before God. It can't deliver us. Paul taught that the law can't save us, that only the grace of God received by faith in Jesus Christ can save us. The Jews thought this message undermined reverence for and the practice of the law of God. And so they accused Paul of teaching against the law, of undermining the law. They were accusing Paul of teaching lawlessness, that the more one sins, the more God is glorified. So verse 7 and verse 8 are good examples of the erroneous doctrine known as antinomianism, against the law, anti Nomianism. The teaching that says the law of God doesn't matter, the commandments of God don't matter, that it doesn't matter how you live, you're forgiven. God will forgive you. Grace will cover it. So let's all sin all the more in order that God's grace may abound all the more. There's a certain kind of twisted logic to that. A human logic. A fallen logic. It's a leap to an incorrect conclusion. And it's a soul-damning lie. This is not what Paul taught. This is not what the New Testament teaches. It's not what the Old Testament teaches. It's not what the Gospel teaches. It's not what Jesus taught. It's a twisting of the Scriptures, a twisting of the truth. And this is just what Paul says about it at the end of verse 8. Their condemnation is just. Those who make such an argument, 
Those who say, let's sin more so that grace can abound all the more. Their condemnation is just. They deserve what's coming to them. They deserve to be judged by God in their sin and guilt. Because they are twisting God's truth. The Jews often slandered Paul, saying he taught these very same things. The word translated slanderously there is the word from which we get our word blaspheme. By saying that Paul was teaching these things, by saying that the gospel implied these things, they were blaspheming God. Antinomianism is blasphemy, for it suggests that God is somehow encouraging us to sin more since even sin, as it is judged, will bring him glory. It's faulty reasoning, it's fatal logic, and it's false. You can't hold to this kind of thinking. You can't teach these things and preach these things and be saved. It shows you haven't grasped the gospel. And anyone who throws around these kinds of arguments deserves the divine condemnation that they are headed for. That's what Paul says. Twist the gospel and you secure your own judgment. Because the gospel is the key that opens up the door to God's forgiveness. Twist the gospel and you lose the key. Now there are all kinds of objections that people make to the gospel. We don't typically hear these kinds maybe, but we hear others. The gospel is too easy. It's too good to be true. I wish it was like that, but it, it can't be. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Too simple. It can't be that simple. How could God simply forgive sin that way? How could God simply forgive a mass murderer? That seems unjust. God will forgive a mass murderer if he repents and confesses and believes on the Lord Jesus, but I, who've never killed anyone, will die in my sins unless I believe in Jesus? I don't believe it. That's not fair. It's not just. It's not right. I should be able to earn my own way to heaven. I should be able to show all the good that I've done, which has surely outweighed all the bad, because I'm not that bad of a person. Surely there isn't only one way to God. Surely there are many ways to God. God is gracious and, you know, He doesn't expect us to have it all figured out. You know, He'll, he'll grant us a lot of grace on Judgment Day and there'll be many paths to God. As long as you're sincere. If God is so good, why is there so much evil in the world? Christians are all just a bunch of hypocrites anyway. They still sin. They still do wicked things. They still do wrong things. They offend me. But you see, all of these objections simply show that the person hasn't really yet grasped the true message of the Bible. They haven't yet grasped the true message of the gospel yet. 
They haven't understood the true glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, yet. You see, these objections can all be answered. But they're not answered according to human wisdom. They're not answered according to human logic. These questions all find their answer, not through faulty human reasoning, but in a faithful God who's revealed Himself in Scripture and most clearly and compellingly revealed Himself in His Son, Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of the world. Jesus Christ is ultimately the answer to our every objection. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and risen again. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ, the one who's coming to judge the world in righteousness. Jesus Christ is ultimately the answer to our every objection. So the answer to our objection is to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and find the answers that your heart is asking. Look to Jesus and find the rest that your soul can find nowhere else. Look to Jesus and in Jesus see the glory of God. Look to Jesus and see the love of God for sinners. Look to Jesus and see the forgiveness of God as Jesus who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The answers to your objections is not found in some chat room somewhere. It's not found in some coffee shop arguing and debating and shredding the Bible with your logic. The answers to your objections are found in no other person than Jesus Christ Himself. Look there. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your patience with us. We thank You that You are gentle and lowly and humble in heart. We thank You that You are kind and patient toward us even while we were in unbelief. And You gently wooed us to Yourself and answered our feeble objections and showed Yourself to us as being the all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. Thank You, Jesus. Thank You, Father, for sending Your Son, Jesus, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That through faith in Jesus Christ, we can escape the judgment that is coming. For Jesus Christ bore it Himself fully on the cross as He became sin for us. Thank you, Father, for the great gospel. Help us to grow in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.